Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Robert Pondicio joins us to discuss a new study that shows that a curriculum rich in content knowledge can boost reading comprehension, especially for students from low-income backgrounds. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber looks at the impact of charter schools on private tutoring prevalence. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. If I don't talk about soccer, David just does not engage. Yeah, it's surprisingly effective, isn't it, Mike? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Robert Pendicio. Robert, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Michael. How you been? Uh, well, as you, you can probably tell, I, I have a bit of a cold here. Uh, either that or you, you were joking ahead of time that I've been uh, picking up a smoking habit, which I, I do wonder, you know, once you're past 50, can you, can you take up those kinds of habits and that just doesn't matter anymore? I have a, I have a good friend back in the day who, uh, who was a smoker, gave it up and swore that when he turned 75, should he live that long, he was going to pick it back up again. Well, see, I, I, I like, I like the way he thinks. And also joining us as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Yeah, Mike, I feel obligated just to clarify that you were kidding, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm kidding. You know, I, I should, I guess, introduce Robert Pendicio as if he needs any introduction to our audience. But for, uh, I don't know, maybe somebody's a brand new listener and doesn't uh, know who Robert Pendicio is. Uh, he is he is now affiliated with the American Enterprise Institute and is also a senior fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Uh, and Robert, you know, we love having you back on. Now, now that you don't really work here anymore, we, uh, we like having you on as often as possible. Thank you. I just love senior fellow. It means my job title is literally old man. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, uh, uh, now, Robert, we often like to do a little banter. And lately, I've been trying to get people to engage on sports and, and nobody wants to do that. If, if I don't talk about soccer, David just does not engage. Yeah, it's surprisingly effective, isn't it, Mike? All right. But you actually care about baseball. So just real quick, uh, are, are we happy with the, the the faster baseball games this year? You know, I, I have made my peace with a lot of changes. And I'm I'm a traditionalist at the end of the day. It will not surprise you to learn. I don't miss pitchers hitting with the National League having the DH. I will give myself enough foresight to say that you know, with the larger bases this year for my fantasy baseball team, I, I drafted a lot of speed guys on the assumption that stolen bases were going to be back. They are, so I'm doing well in my fantasy league. And you know what? You get to a certain age, the idea of watching a four-hour baseball game is just not fun anymore. So now I can turn on a game at 7 o'clock. My wife now, instead of thinking, okay, he's gone for the night, we can watch a movie at nine o'clock now. It's great. So this sounds like two thumbs up from Robert. I like it. Now let's not, you know, take this and think, oh, well, if we just shorten the school day or shorten the school year or the school week, people would like it better. I mean, they would like it better. I mean, let's face it, students and teachers would like it better, but we would not like it better. Although, as I'm sure you know, elite private schools in this country send their kids to school for what, 140 days a year and they do just fine. So- you know, if, if you have a longer day and it's more of what's not working, then, you know, you're not gaining anything. Well, we're not here to jabber on about that. We are here to talk about an exciting new development in the world of core knowledge. So let's do that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Robert, well, we will save the wonky stuff for uh, the, the research minute with Amber. But, uh, you know, because let's not fool ourselves that you and I are going to talk about the methodology of a, of a new study. But there is a new study out that shows very promising findings for core knowledge focused on Colorado charter schools that use that domain. 
You've written about this. There's been some critique of the studies. We'll see uh, as it goes through various peer review processes and the like, uh, what the research crowd makes of it. But I'm more interested in your take on where core knowledge is right now. I mean, it, it strikes me that you've you've got this core knowledge language arts curriculum that you know is on everybody's list as being aligned to high standards and I think is being adopted more and more places. I mean, is this finally happening? Yeah, well, hold on a second. Um, and, you know, I, I think I'm second to no one in my admiration for for E.D. Hirsch Jr., whose you know, work has kind of defined my post-classroom career. And <clears throat> full disclosure, I used to work for the Core Knowledge Foundation. Not, you know, to be clear, I worked, for core, I worked for Core Knowledge because I was a believer in what they do. I didn't become a believer because I work there. But a point of fact, um, the, the the study we're talking about was not about the Core Knowledge Language Arts Program. It predates that. It's a collection of charter schools in Colorado that built their curriculum around what we call the Core Knowledge Sequence, which is the grade-by-grade -grade sequence of topics that literate people know and assume that you know too. So if anything, you could assume that once you have a more codified curriculum like CKLA, Core Knowledge Language Arts, that these very robust findings could be even more so because they're easier to do now. You don't have to bootstrap. This always struck me, this, this argument that E.D. Hirsch was making that, hey, you know, elementary schools should teach uh, more stuff like history and science and geography. Like, that this wasn't, shouldn't have been a very tough argument to make. The stuff is fun to teach to little kids. It's uh, It seems doable. It's not like some education reforms that seem particularly hard. I mean, do you feel like the ground has, has shifted? Yeah, let's hope so, right? Um, I mean, you know, we're having a science of reading moment, courtesy of Emily Hanford and, and her excellent work for American Public Media. But as I think we've discussed before, Mike, you know, that's really about foundational skills. That's about decoding. You know, the the, the the core knowledge stuff, the E.D. Hirsch stuff, that's what comes next. That's been a little bit absent, I think, from the science of reading discussion. So it, one flows from the other. But yes, to the degree to which people take uh, the science of reading seriously, all roads lead to this. Because this is what language comprehension, this is what reading comprehension is. Uh, I think I said this in the piece that I wrote for The Gadfly. We have this idea that reading comprehension is a skill, like throwing a ball or riding a bike. Once you learn how to ride a bike, you can ride any bike. So you're going to teach that. Well, it just doesn't work that way. This is what Hirsch has been going on about for 40 years, that you have to know at least a little bit about a topic in order to read about it with comprehension, and sometimes rather a lot. So what's interesting about this study, Mike, is we it, it's, not, it's not news that background knowledge assists comprehension. What's news here is that it's been... You, you can identify the, the, the condition, but we haven't been able to create the condition, so to speak. In other words, is there, is there a curricular input that will create a knowledge-rich kid, so to speak, that will, that will raise comprehension? Um, so that, you know, the, 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 the idea that knowledge undergirds comprehension is well-established. What's new and interesting here is that now, as I think I said in the piece, We've known that Hirsch's theory is is solid. Well, now that we know his now we know his prescription, the core knowledge sequence appears to to be to be efficacious in in creating uh, reading comprehension. No, that's right. That that this can be seen as an educational intervention. Uh, that's right. Because otherwise, what right? We we knew a lot of this. So much of this happens in the home. It happens in the early years. You know, uh, kids with uh, say college educated parents tend to sure. be in these homes that have uh, literacy everywhere that have words and knowledge all around them. And, and some kids, unfortunately, grew up in America without that. And so, uh, you know, can schools give a big dosage 
of that background knowledge and can it make a difference? And when we say this, you know, there's the core knowledge, as you say, there, there's the sequence, there's now this curriculum that was developed in the Common Core days. But I would say that, you know, there's also some other English language arts curricula uh, that are on the market now that are also knowledge rich. Now, again, as a core knowledge guy, you might like core knowledge more, but I think about EL education, expertise learning, with wisdom. With wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I'm, I'm an unrepentant E.D. Hirsch disciple, but um, I've made this point for years now. If you are a Hirschian, well, then you should be happy it, or just as happy if, if a school adopts wit and wisdom, adopts E.L., adopts another knowledge-rich language arts curriculum. The conceptual breakthrough here is this idea that there's not stuff you learn and then there's E.L.A., that, that you can't separate the two. Um, that ELA is is a, a reflection of the amount of knowledge you have. Um, that that conceptual breakthrough, frankly, didn't exist ten years ago. It's one of the reasons the Core Knowledge Foundation, when I was working there, developed CKLA to operationalize this. Now there are other players in the game, and um, I'm not going to sit here, even though I'm a died in the wall Hersheyan, and say Core Knowledge Language Arts is better than the other two. Frankly, I'm happy if they adopt any of those. David, what, what do you think? I mean, are we getting to the point where we can claim that that a knowledge-rich curriculum is part of the science of reading, you know, that's got the same kind of evidence that, uh, you know, phonics and decoding and all that? Or is this is this still what we got a ways to go on that? I think where my head goes is just trying to characterize a little bit more precisely. And maybe Robert can just do this for us, you know, anecdotally, because he follows this so closely, what it is exactly that needs to change, right? Because I, I mean, honestly, I, I don't sense a groundswell of opposition out there. Maybe I'm just naive, right? But I don't feel like there's a groundswell of opposition to the, the concept of a, of a knowledge-rich curriculum, certainly when you put it like that, right? I have the sense that there's some bad ideas floating out there that might not be that. The, the, the reason I became a, a Hirsch disciple 20 years ago, and, and I, I know I said this in the piece that I wrote for the Gadfly, Hirsch was the one guy who described what I saw in my South Bronx fifth, fifth grade classroom every single day. Kids who could decode, some more fluently than others, but who struggled with comprehension. And, and when you say that you don't detect the opposition, well, I can tell you exactly what the opposition is. The opposition is, oh, no, no, kids need to read about their own experience. Uh, they need a curriculum that is frankly culturally relevant, that reflects you know their interests and their background. You know, Hirsch would would probably tell you, um, and I'm sure of this. I mean, you know, if if you conceive of, and I've I've been in rooms where I've heard core knowledge derided as frankly the white supremacist curriculum, okay, uh, or this question of whose knowledge do we teach. I, I don't know if Hirsch would say it as bluntly as I'm about to, but but I think the point is, look. Literate Americans or, you know, literate speakers and writers make assumptions about what their audiences know. When those assumptions are correct, language proficiency does feel like a skill. If you decide, okay, we're so, so in other words, the way to conceive of what Hirsch has been doing for the past 40 years is not an attempt to impose, this is the stuff you should know because I say so. Uh, in other words, it's not canon making, it's a curatorial effort. It's what is it that the, what is the body of knowledge that literate people know and assume you know too? Catalog it, teach it. Um, that's why I believe this is really the last word in, in equity and even a very progressive idea, as opposed to, no, we're going to customize the education for the interests of, of, of the particular group. That's a very humane impulse, but you end up with lots of gaps 
Um, and, 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 and language proficiency just does not honor that way of thinking. In other words, you're just trying to, you're trying to impose a hierarchy on language that just, you, that you can't, it just doesn't exist. Yeah. And, and that's the, you know, this ideological opposition. And then there's just the practical thing of, you know, well, what do you take out so you can fit more knowledge building in? Right. And I think you and others have argued, well, it's these endless skills of let's teach quote reading comprehension, which there are some tricks and tools that maybe you can teach, but they don't take a lot of time. Well, and they're not transferable. You know, in other words, that's that's the whole thing. They don't transfer from known knowledge domains to unknown knowledge domains. And Mike, look to, to be blunt, the other thing that I've I, and I've said this a thousand times in the last twenty years, there's no such thing, and never will be such a thing as a curriculum that tells kids everything they need to know. So a lot of this is school culture too. I mean, I, I you know I don't think this is original to me, but I always counsel schools you know, less mirrors, more windows. In other words, focus, what I was taught to teach reading, make sure that what you're, what kids are reading reflects their interests and experience. Nice impulse, but you really need to direct kids' attention out the window. You need to valorize this idea that there's always new stuff out there to know that people are going to assume that you're paying attention to and know. Um, so that's why your curriculum, and, and just, it's not even the curriculum, the school culture has to valorize being a well-informed person and paying attention to what's going on in the world. And and that you're basically, look, the elementary school is like this wonderful little liberal arts, <laughs> mini liberal arts college, right? I'm laughing, Mike, because I, I swear, whenever I tell people who are not in education about, oh, there's this thing called core knowledge, and it means, you know, kids are supposed to get a lot of, you know, art and music and science and history and literature. People always say, well, doesn't every school do that? Like, no, they don't. Well, maybe now they will. And, uh, you know, look, this is an issue. It can feel like pushing a boulder up the mountain, but it also can feel, I think, like there is some progress being made here and and more evidence is certainly helpful. So thank you, Robert. And hey, for real, thanks, thanks for all you've done on this for a long time. It's made a difference. Thanks, Michael. All right, Robert Pendicio at the American Enterprise Institute and the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Thanks for coming on the show. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Hey, uh, Amber, I feel like you and Mike are heading in opposite directions here. Somehow we lost him between uh, the, you know, Ed Reform update and the research minute. I think he got the flu or something by all accounts. But you you are coming from a, a sunny place. Where was it? The Bahamas? or I went to the Virgin Islands. Oh, man. St. Martin, St. Thomas, and a, a little uh, lovely place in the Dominican Republic. I think it was Palo, Palo Plato. Um, but oh, my gosh, David, my first cruise ever. And uh, man, it was phenomenal. We had this fancy suite and uh, with a butler, mind you, and uh, all free drinks and Free gourmet meals and um, yeah, it it was it was not a bad time. It's it's anecdotes like that that endear us to the rank and file in education reform. Um, <laughs> I, I I think I heard you say it was your first cruise ever, so that sounds very down to earth. And um, yes. I am a little bit jealous. I have to say that sounds fantastic. What was the best place you went to? Uh, well, you know, it was the excursions, right? When you go on these cruises, you get to port and you you pay for, I don't know, whatever excursion grabs your fancy. Uh, and in our case, it was um, going to hiking to a waterfall. And then you had the uh, choice of either jumping off the waterfall, maybe, I don't know, 35 feet, 
or there was a, uh, a series of rocks that had gotten smooth over the years with people sliding down the waterfall. I opted for the slide. My, my risk taker girlfriend opted for the jump. Uh, but hey, it was both, both were, were good times to be had. Yeah, I've never been able to do the whole jumping thing. Um, there's just <laughs> something very small and cowardly inside me that thinks no, no. This, is, this is a bad idea. Yeah, I, I feel much better sliding on my on my rump than looking down 35 feet and saying, yeah, this is a great idea. Let me step off this ledge. All right. Well, enough, uh, enough chit chat. Hey, I got an, another fun study. How about how about that segue? Sure, sure, sure. Lay it on us. Out of Harvard, new study. It's looking at the impact of charter schools. David, we got a new outcome. You know how we're always looking for impact of charter schools on blank? Yes. How about private school, private tutoring businesses? Huh. <laughs> it's looking at um, a, a novel outcome. Uh, the theory is that both uh, charter schools and tutoring businesses operate off of family dissatisfaction with traditional zone schools, perhaps, and maybe they're related. So the study asks, again, whether the availability of charter schools depresses or increases the, the demand for tutoring centers and whether those results differ across different geographical regions. So they are using Common Core data, Census Bureau data, and a proprietary data set called Info on Historical U.S. Businesses so that they can identify these tutoring or test prep centers. Uh, again, they are estimating the impact of a charter school opening in a neighborhood on tutoring prevalence as measured by the number of tutoring centers in that neighborhood. First, they've got to use a propensity score matching process to identify for each of the treated neighborhoods a neighborhood that never experienced a charter school opening, but which is similar to the treated neighborhood relative to the growth of tutoring centers and the chance of an increase in the charter school count for the same year as the treated unit. Then they use these selected control neighborhoods to estimate a counterfactual trajectory that would have occurred for treated neighborhoods had they not had the increase in the prevalence of charter schools. And they go through a bunch of exercises to show that these comparisons are valid and they had, you know, similar pre-treatment uh, trends and that they're as valid as they can possibly be. Finally, they estimate impacts using an event study model, which spans 10 years before the treatment onset of these charters and 10 years after the onset They've got this matching process, results in over 4,200 treated and 19,000 control units, which again, a unit is a school neighborhood defined by the location of public schools. Uh, the treatment, I know it's a get, getting a little, little uh, complicated here. The treatment is a defined by the change in the number of charter schools within those neighborhoods. Okay. All right, to de determine proximity of the charter school or the tutoring center to a neighborhood, they calculate a radius that amounts to between one and 10 miles for the most part. And then they calculate the number of charters in the radius, which overlap in grade service by a non-charter school. Uh, charters can be newly opened, relocated or reopened. And they're looking at each unit in 2009, which is in the middle of their observation period. Whew. With all that key results, they see a consistent positive and growing treatment impact 
on these school tutoring prevalence, these private school tutoring uh, shops opening uh, in response to charter school openings. So after one year post-treatment, meaning you've witnessed a change in the number of charter schools opening, the treated neighborhoods had on average 3.1% additional growth in tutoring centers as compared to these matched control neighborhoods. By five years post-change in charter openings, the treated neighborhoods had on average 7% additional growth in tutoring centers. And then they have some sort of associational analyses looking at heterogeneity. Not any big surprises here with these associations. They divide these neighborhoods into the bottom, middle, and top terciles in terms of income per capita, proportion of bachelor degree holders, proportion of Asian student populations, and proportion of foreign born. And they find that the top terciles of income degree holders and Asian populations show the largest impacts, while the bottom tercile showed no significant differences, and the middle landed somewhere in between. So you see that certain better, you know, wealthier neighborhoods, you know, tend to tend to benefit a little bit more. Uh, again, the analysis when you kind of really see, okay, what's it really telling us? It seems to say, okay, it looks like they have a causal impact if you if you buy into this methodology here on the prevalence of these private tutoring centers. Uh, but again, all these relationships, um, you know, are, aren't causal, and, and we don't exactly understand why this relationship uh, may be occurring. That's what I got, David. Huh. Interesting. Um, so I'm struggling a bit here. So so help me understand. I mean, do they speculate? about what's going on here because it sounds like you said tutoring increased right or at least the number of tutoring centers increases the centers that's right okay but in places where there are more charter schools and it's increasing for populations that we don't necessarily associate with attending charter schools am i getting that right well no that the the neighborhoods that tended to have higher income right were yeah. the ones where they saw, you know, basically the um, the increases in the tutorings. All right. So it's charter schools selecting into high income. Well, not selecting. They're, we're, we're, imagine they're randomly assigned to these high right. income neighborhoods, right? And then in response, okay, do we know anything about, I guess we don't know anything about who is going to these tutoring centers, whether they are kids at the charters. It's mostly kids in the traditional public schools, Right. Well, we, we don't know that. Uh, they, they did not actually look at that. Um, but, but there, I mean, the discussion was basically, you know, do you already have these, do these private tutoring uh, places see the charter schools as, as a signal, right, that there's interest in, you know, increased options for educating kids? Um, or is there some sort of infrastructure that's already in place that might allow them to open more easily? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think to the why question. It's we just don't don't know what's going on here. Yeah, but I mean, let's speculate here, right? Because that's the fun part. I mean, do you think it's based on what you read? I mean, one possibility could be that parents, I don't know, parents in the traditional public school system uh, are sort of intuiting that the environment is more competitive, right? And maybe responding to the sense that that kids are leaving. To, you know, for, for other options and that they need to compete. Does that ring true? 
Could be, could be an increased competitive response. You know, I, I, I do think that if we're seeing, you know, some of these, we're, we're not seeing the change at the lower tercels, right? In terms of the association. Yeah. So, you know, is, is it still the case that, you know, it's going to cost money, obviously, to go to a, a private tutoring um, and you're and you're still not seeing the pickup by some of these kids who may be needing it the most, even though, you know, that's where that's where the, the services need to really happen. I guess. Yeah, I guess what I'm struggling with is whether, you know, tutoring and let's just say chartering are complements or substitutes. Right. I could sort of argue it either way. I don't know. I mean, it's it's not even really the right language, right? Because it, it feels more like it's about psychology. But you could imagine, you know, kids who go to charter schools, right, um, sort of being more likely to, I don't know, get into the tutoring culture. I, is that even the right word for it? Or you could imagine, right, or you could imagine some sort of competitive effect. Is it the sense of the paper that these tutoring centers are who runs them? Are they, are they district run? Are they completely independent? Are they affiliated with charters? I actually don't know the answer to that question, but they use this historical business data set. Right. So they have to be registered as a tutoring center. I guess I was thinking of more of as, a, you know, as a Sylvan or a, you know, a place like that, but, but I don't know for sure. And yeah, I'm trying to think the tutoring centers run by districts, they wouldn't be it wouldn't be a separate entity listed into this historical business data set, I wouldn't think. Right. I think that's right. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, I'm going to go with my my original theory, which is that parents uh, who see their kids' classmates leaving for fancy, shiny charter schools are responding Tiger Mom style and uh, deciding to, to to kill the fun. And I agree. It would have been super helpful to um, to know who the kids were. And, and hey... A little, a, little, a little bit of qualitative uh, uh, interviews could have helped as well, David. You know, we, we like to tack those on every now and then just to get a sense of what's going on. Do we? I always find that when we do that, we regret it almost immediately. But I digress. You're speaking of a, a current study, perhaps, but... Per- perhaps. All right. <laughs> all right. I think that's probably all the time we have. Mike would be so proud of us. Yeah, Mike would be proud of us. <laughs> Until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.